Okay. Um, so we are in the same room. It's so weird. <laughs> I feel like we are doing an episode of Back to Work now. Mm-hmm. Or we're we're following their trajectory. <laughs> On the upside, we had actually like met before. That's true. The That's first true. time they were recording. We don't need to have that moment where we assess each other's faces and yeah. we figure out how yeah, weird already, it is. Yeah, I already know what you look like. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, the new haircut's great, though. Thank you. I'm getting rave reviews, so I think I'll keep it. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, five stars. Excellent haircut. Would cut again? Uh, I don't think your hair cutter reviews your haircut. That would be a mm. little... There's a conflict of interest. Mm-hmm. I, I think they have like um, their their national organizations probably have an ethics policy that's against that. Well, I mean, there's a waiver. Oh, okay, so. gotcha. Uh huh. <laughs> Get a dispensation from the haircutting cardinal. Uh huh. Yeah, yeah. Uh, make sure it's blessed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Bless these shears. Yeah. Um. So we're <laughs> doing a couple things a little weird today. Um. Beyond the normal things that we do weird, like the entire podcast. Um. Nailed it. We're in the same room. <laughs> Um, this is going to be the first of the bi-weekly episodes of our show, and, uh, we're doing our fifth, uh, in our quarterly series of discussions about cultural artifacts, except for today, instead of talking about a book or a movie or a TV show or something along those lines, we are actually going to be discussing an environment, a place, um, an experience, uh, namely, uh, Walt Disney World in Orlando, Florida. Mm-hmm. Which, to be fair, because Disney is a conglomerate, it really is all those things you said. Yes, that's true. It is also a book <laughs> and a movie and... <laughs> <laughs> Several, in fact. <laughs> yes. Yes, indeed. Indeed. You are listening to Priority, a podcast about choices, limitations, and getting stuff done. Priority is hosted by Katie Leibman and her brother, Max Leibman. That's me. Today's episode is entitled, What Would Walt Disney World Do? For complete show notes, including links to anything we discuss on the podcast today, visit us online at priority.fm slash 53. Um, and I guess I kind of want to, that's kind of maybe maybe the way in and the thing to talk about here is, um, you know, what it means to make culture to make art. Um, this is something that I'm certainly a freshman level architecture student would, would know, um, very well is that places too are designed and are art and have messages to convey. Um, but in particular, this is a place we're talking about where the entire place is a message to be conveyed. Um, and what that message is, I think depends on who you are and your experience there. It might be that, you know, um, we wait in Soviet style lines that go on forever. And then the kids have a meltdown at three in the afternoon because they didn't get another toy. Um, or that message might be, you know, <laughs> we paid thousands of dollars for this. Mm-hmm. Or that message might be like, this really is the most magical place on earth. And wow, what an experience. And 10 out of 10, five stars would mm-hmm. vacate again. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Katie, your thoughts? experience. Yeah, I think, you know, when we first talked about choosing this topic, it's, it was almost hard for me. It still sort of is. We'll see how this goes, dear listener. Um, It's sort of hard to get one's head around such an experience because it is so immersive. It is so distinct. Um, (laughs) And in our family, um, so we've always loved Disney. Our mother did, did daycare, did childcare for 20 years. Um, and you know, if not that had four children. So, <laughs> you know, we had a few Disney movies in our, in our home. Um, and of course these stories and, and the things that Disney has popularized over the years, there are fairy tales, there are cultural markers, there are all these different things wrapped up in, um, what we think of as Disney things. Right. Um, but it's just so expansive. You know, the company is 92 years old or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, as children, we were fortunate enough to go to Walt Disney World. Did you go that first time? Yes, the first okay. time, yeah. I couldn't remember. Uh, I was four years old. Max was not four years old. <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, you know, and we've had the pleasure of going several times since then, because as we've mentioned, our, our parents are uh, snowbirds. Um, they're down in that part of the country more often now. Um so it's almost hard to get into to think about 
what what does Disney and in particular Disney World mean? It is such a particular distinct experience. I don't know. So I guess I haven't contributed yet. I'm just saying I'm lost. <laughs> How <laughs> well, do we do this? <laughs> I, um, I think distinct experience is a, is not a bad way in. Um, I mean, this is the thing: is everyone's got. I shouldn't say everyone. People live in Utah. Um, many people have an amusement park of some kind near them. Um, you know, here uh, I'm in the greater Kansas City area, um, as are you for the moment. And we have uh, Worlds of Fun and Oceans of Fun, um, which are neither worlds nor oceans, nor, in my experience, fun. Disgust. Um In Des Moines, there's Adventureland. In various places, there are six flags over such and such a state. Um uh, in Orlando, there is also another theme park named Universal Studios and another named SeaWorld, where they're really nice to whales. Um, you know, there's there's places all over that are like this, but with the possible exception of Universal, um, and I know I know you know Busch Gardens and SeaWorld are very nice for what they are, but with the ex- ex- possible exception of Universal Studios, um, and I don't think it's that much of an exception. I really do think the Disney parks are kind of a singular experience. Um, I will put this in show notes. There was a recent episode of, uh, Reconcilable Differences, um, with John Syracuse and Merlin Mann, where they, they discussed Disney World, um, cause Syracuse took his kids for the first time this past summer, uh, after <laughs> saving for five years, he said, um, which is another element of, of this, um, that we need to keep in mind is that it's a very expensive experience. Um, but he said something about the, about the parks and the Disney experience that I think uh, rings true and is is really right and and interesting that that he framed both as why it's special and what you know the big threat to the future of the property is, which is um, it is this place that is singularly dedicated to making the guests feel good. Um, that that you know even more like one thing we'll probably talk about a little bit is the mechanics of it like how dedicated Disney is to maintaining the illusion of what is going on you know the facade the the music and the spaces and the sights and the scenery and the costuming and all of it um but even more than than just the physical structures um just the way everything is orchestrated the way that the the cast as they call the people who work there uh is trained um Everything there is is dedicated to the purpose, well, first dedicated to the purpose of vacuuming all the money out of your wallet, but after that, dedicated to the purpose of making you feel pretty good about it. Mm-hmm. Um, it is meant to be a fun place. Like, even when you are waiting in an hour-long line for whatever new ride is, is the new hotness, um, you know, they try to make the queues interesting. Um, that's one thing that, that uh, I know... Um, you know, that's not any longer completely unique to Walt Disney World. Um, I have been to the, to the original part, at least of the Harry Potter section at Universal Studios and, and the queue for the, the, the big ride was, was amazing. Um, maybe even better than Disney did it, but that's something you don't see most places. Um, I mean, I haven't been to, haven't been to Worlds of Fun recently, but I don't remember interesting scenery when I was standing in line. Um, certainly you don't see that at, uh, for instance, in, uh, at, at Branson, Missouri, um, there is a <laughs> backwoods Disney world called silver dollar city. Um, which, uh, I would say the people there are uh, definitely have a Disney level of buy-in to their role. Everybody is acting the part of yokels and hill people and cowboys, um, probably cause they are. But, uh, aside from that, like you, I mean, you know, when you're in line, you're in line and it's a line. Mm-hmm. And you may as well be waiting to find out that there's no bread, like like you are a citizen in the USSR. Um, and honestly, some of the rides are kind of like that. <laughs> Gets the front of the line, and it's like there's no bread. Um, but at, at Walt Disney World, even standing in a line, they want to be an experience. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And and that's I don't know. That's it's something. You know, and if we're if we were going to talk about like practical priority esque lessons, that might be something to say. Is you know. This is a place where you can go to see people who really buy into what their company is doing um, and a company that is really firing on all cylinders to try and you know, not always succeed, but to try and make every guest feel really good about their experience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And not always in the <laughs> overly chipper, sugar-fueled sort of manic way either. You mentioned the design of all these spaces and things that everything is meant to be an experience 
it's so true. Everything is so carefully engineered and laid out that, you know, if, if you are headed where you're supposed to be, it's going to be either an efficient or enjoyable or both, um, route, you know, um, if you are meant to be in the fast pass line, um, that bypasses a lot of the snake lines, um, one of their, uh, ride fulfillment systems. I just made up that phrase. Um, (laughs) you know, you will be taking a different path that will be, uh, more direct than the giant snake lines. But meanwhile, the people in the snake lines, like you're saying, um, there might be interactive activities. There might be more landscaping or more, um, uh, more of the immersive, the characters are, are put into the design of the ride so that in, in each room you're getting reminded of part of whatever that attraction is. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they've thought of each route. They've thought of each space in a very careful way. Yeah, um, for sure. Um, and there's, you know, some, something thinking about the, the queue lines as well. Um, even when it's not fancy and high tech, like some of the more recent rides, um, uh, thinking in particular of, of, uh, is it, I always get confused, which is the show, which is the ride. There's the journey of the little mermaid and there's the voyage of the little mermaid. Uh, Oh, and the, the gra- Ariel's Grotto. Ariel's and... Grotto. Uh, Ariel's Grotto, I think, is where the character the, meet and like, greet is. Yeah. Because Billy and I almost got into that line because the... the, <laughs> the not because we wanted to go meet Ariel, although I'm sure she's very nice. Um, I'm sure she's a very nice princess. Yeah, she's, um, she's my favorite princess I've met in the parks. Oh, okay. So, see, I'm, I'm, sure she's, I'm sure she's a lovely girl. Um, but we saw that the, the wait time number of minutes was higher for Ariel's Grotto than it was for... I think the ride is Voyage. Our mother would be very disappointed right now, but mm. we don't remember. I think Journey is the show, Voyage is the ride, Grotto is the princess. <laughs> <laughs> Title. Um, <laughs> yes, the sojourn of the Little Mermaid. Quest mm-hmm. of the Little Mermaid. Okay, anyhow, we'll say Voyage. Mm. Um, but the Voyage of the Little Mermaid ride's a great example, uh, as, is, as is Winnie the Pooh, um, where a lot of technology has been applied to the lions. Um uh, in addition to having, you know, animatronics, which, you know, the first time that I ever went to Walt Disney World um, in 1989, I don't think you really saw those outside of rides and shows. Like, you wouldn't see one just in the line. Like, the line would just be a line with nice scenery and music. Unless um, it had become sentient and was <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> taking the over. Hall, the Hall of Presidents, the presidents come streaming out, killing people, ah, and causing mass I, hysteria. I think Simpsons did that. Yeah, probably. Okay. Um, <laughs> Not our joke. <laughs> Uh, but there's a, um, there, there are little screens everywhere where you see, uh, crabs scuttling around carrying things. Um, I think there's an interactive element to that, but I haven't actually done it. Um, there are interactive things to play with both high tech and not in the line at at Winnie the Pooh. But even setting those aside, like the old style cues, um, thinking about Pirates of the Caribbean, um, Merlin might've pointed this out in, in one of those uh, podcasts that we'll link to um, where he's discussed Walt Disney world. But as soon as you step into the building and that one doesn't even have anything fancy, there is nothing high tech. Um, it is all just, just, you know, props and scenery, um, you know, set design. The, the theming is entirely old school, but as soon as you step into the building, you know, even if there's, a 45-minute line ahead of you, you are on the ride. You, mm-hmm. you know, the experience has begun. The music is there. The sounds are there. The sights are there. Um, even the smell's kind of there because you have that musty, you know, Florida water that smells like dead dinosaurs. Um, you are in the ride from the minute you get into the building. And it, it doesn't take a bit of technology. What it, All it takes is a total dedication to making that, making that work. Mm-hmm. In... Thinking about this episode, I kept thinking about the idea of fantasy. Um, so sort of two different definitions. The one, of course, sort of the delusioned, uh, immersive experience of, of leaving the real world. And, you know, I'm, now I'm picturing walking into the, the pirate's entrance um, and entering some other space, some other whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but in sort of the 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 critical way we would say you like well it's it's pure fantasy it's not real it's damaging it's bad for the world that there are people who live in this fantasy land all the time there's sort of the the negative connotation um and then the one the one i'm thinking of and i sort of wrecked the distinction because i already used the word immersive but then there's that idea of of an immersive 
and positively disorienting experience, right? <laughs> so I was sure. thinking about how, you know, if you think of what the interior snake lines of pirates are supposed to be like, once you've walked through the open foyer sort of area, you are meant to be in some sort of giant stone structure on a port, right? Like you, you are getting ready to get on your boat down, Mm -hmm. you know, in an underground level, uh, and then go out into the open water and go see the pirates. Right. Um, well, and, and, uh, to be fair to the theming, uh, you're not meant to be underground when you are getting onto the boat because you can see off to the side, uh, there is a, a sort of nighttime Vista. Um, so if you get on, not in the fast pass line, but the regular line, I guess either way, you're pointing the same way once you get on the boat. When you get on the boat, it's to your right. Mm. You can see the ocean and you can see ships. Oh, that's right. Yeah. That's right. It's pretty dark, but... So it's meant to be night. We'll say that It's meant to be night, yeah. Yeah, not necessarily underground. Mm -hmm. Um, So then I was thinking of sort of that second definition of fantasy. Not that I'm obsessive about details of Disney World or anything. (laughs) Not that we're overanalyzing. Yeah, so I was thinking about, you know, those, those... The immersive experience of all this is meant to disorient you in a pleasant way right mm-hmm. you you did not just step out of well and i guess there are there are ports in florida there would have been pirates landing in florida so never mind you're not in florida florida anymore now you're in the past pirates florida <laughs> well and of course it's not the real past because it's not historic it's fictionalized blah 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 this conversation devolved your turn to step in i, I think it, i think it devolved in a good direction though um <laughs> Yeah, and pirates is um, as far as like the immersive kind of fantasy, um, you know, being disoriented in a good way. That's something that I. Um, so when the when when I first went, my first trip was was just mom and me. Um, it was a prize from a contest, so it was you know a four day trip for two people. Um, so we went. Um, you guys went to the zoo while we were gone. <laughs> And luckily, I'm so sorry. <laughs> well, and I was—I would have been a newborn, so what did yeah, I you were—you were pretty young, so I don't <laughs> think you minded either way. Not that I'm bitter. Um, you were old enough to say tiger. What? Because um, that's that's that story was told over the phone. Um, oh, I that, said uh, a word. Yeah, the the uh, in the cat house, you had pointed and yelled tiger, and like a bunch of people turned around and then saw it was this teeny tiny little baby, and we're like, oh, oh. The listener, I've never heard that story. I really like that. <laughs> Thanks, Disney. <laughs> uh, but anyhow, the first time we went um, was, I mean, I was, uh, I think, between my fifth and sixth grade years. So I was pretty young uh, and at the time pretty obsessed with video games, um, which were not super advanced at the time. You know, this is around the transitional period from 8-bit to 16-bit, you know, from the original Super Mario to Super Mario World, um, kind of in that era. And... Uh, the thing, and I do remember it was Pirates in particular where this sunk in, but it stayed with me the whole trip. Um, the thing that really struck me was it was a place that was like being in a video game. You know, I was going somewhere that normally I experienced, you know, secondhand in a very crude way through a screen or through a book, if you like. Um, but, but it was, it was a way to go and, um, there's a phrase, uh, from an article in a magazine that is probably not online. It wasn't the last time I looked for it, but I'm sure I can find something about the magazine to link to. Um, a magazine that I, I liked at the time called Video Games and Computer Entertainment, um, which uh, in their, I think their second or third issue, um, they had an article about Photon, which was a, a laser tag style game. Um, according to this article, it was actually the originator of laser tag. Um, I don't know if that's accurate or not. I've, I've seen some some stories disputing that, but in any case, an early, early version of laser tag. Um, and the, the way that it evolved was, uh, the, the inventors had gone and seen star Wars, the original in 1977 and became obsessed with creating a place where you could go. And, and the phrase they used was go and do just that, you know, be running through futuristic corridors as though on a spaceship, shooting laser guns at each other for fun. Um, and that was that was kind of the experience, and I very distinctly remember my little like whatever eleven year old self in the the line for Pirates of the Caribbean, thinking like that's what I'm doing, you know mm. I am going and doing just that. Now I'm not going to like be actually swashbuckling with the pirates. I don't think um, at the time I was still a little bit overwhelmed and confused about <laughs> what was going on because uh, I I had I had figured this was going to be like a slightly nicer version of of like Adventureland or Peony Park, you know these terrible little local 
amusement parks from back home. Um, yeah, I was, I was utterly not prepared. And like when it, when it sank in just how good this place was and, you know, when, when on that ride, I think it was still the first evening we were there, you know, I still had like three and a half more days of this. I was like, Oh, <laughs> what next? What next? Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, it's really, it's really something, something spectacular. Um, that someone has put that much thought and that much money and effort and engineering talent into creating the illusion of all these places. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for no, no purpose better than to keep me entertained for an afternoon when I'm there. Mm-hmm. No, it is such an enterprise. Well, I was thinking about the swashbuckling too. You can do that now. They have the, <laughs> yeah, I, I, yes, you can. Again, mom would know the name. Um, in front of pirates across um, the the walkway, Jack the... Sparrow's Grotto. <laughs> Ooh, I don't. That sounds like a space that needs to be cleaned more regularly than <laughs> even everything. It else. sounds it sounds dirty when you put a man's name in front of it. Like the streets of New Orleans, they have to hose it down every morning at five a.m. Mm-hmm. Just in cases. Yeah, um, which at the uh, the Port Orleans Hotel at Disney World, they do hose down the streets every morning, but I don't think it's for the reasons that they would in the real one. The New Orleans, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's booze at the resorts, but yeah, yeah. Anyway, so you can swashbuckle now. Yes, um, you can. One can buckle swash if one wishes. <laughs> when buckling is on the menu. <laughs> yeah, that's, mm-hmm. that is something that's changed over the years too. Um, in in I would imagine an effort to increase capacity in the parks and make sure. People aren't mad because all they do is stand in Soviet-style lines all day. I'm just going to keep saying that because it seems so so profoundly right. Like, there's nothing Russian about anything anywhere in the parks. But it just, you know, that was... Um, growing up, uh, some of our friends went and did not have a good time because their sense of it was they stood in lines all day because, you know, they just their parents you know bought tickets, got hotels, and just went rather than sort of planning things out. And mm-hmm. even then, you really needed to have a plan. Um, but... Uh, they have really done an amazing job, like filling in every nook and cranny of the parks with things to do. Um, in addition to more shops, um, that's one thing. I know there always were gift shops there. That's that's such a big joke that um, Banksy named his Disney World uh, uh, exit to the gift shop. Exit through the gift shop is the name of of his documentary about the parks. Um, but, you know, they've put in more shops, they've put in more restaurants, they've put in more shows, they've put in more things where your little kids can go meet characters or your big kids can go meet characters. They've put in more things where your kids can be the characters, like you mentioned, the swashbuckling one mm-hmm. uh, in in um, Hollywood Studios. In that park, they have a, a Star Wars themed one where they can be uh, Jedi in training. Mm-hmm. The Bippity Boppity Boutiques, where for several hundred dollars, your little girls can be plastered with glitter spray and mm-hmm. put into a princess dress. Yes, exactly. Yeah, there's, there's, and I mean, some of that was probably always there, and I just didn't notice or care because, you know, when we went as kids, they, we didn't have the money for all well, the extra stuff. And also, you brought your own glitter spray. I wasn't really, yeah, you brought your own glitter spray. I wasn't really into being a princess. Um, but some of the two, I do feel like, I mean, that's one thing, like Hollywood Studios is a good example. I remember that park, it's not a big park, but I remember it being a lot more spacious and just filled with scenery. Like, there was less going on per square foot. Um, mm-hmm. uh, well, probably not than now. Right now, half the park is closed for construction. But, um, you know, compared to, to four or five years ago, you know, when we first went, there was a lot less going on per square foot. Like, over in the area where Star Wars is, there was a lot more just Star Wars scenery, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. Um, it was very easy to pose in front of the giant Imperial Walker because the line didn't go right in front of it because mm-hmm. it was just a big open area. Yeah, it, it felt more like in certain zoos where you really are just walking along a path for a while to get to the next area. Mm-hmm. It, that that's that's a great way of putting it. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and they've they've really filled it in trying to make sure their experiences. But in the course of that, they've also created... You know, instead of instead of cramming it so full that you don't feel like you're there anymore, they've created ways to be even more there. Um, you know, more participatory <laughs> mm. things. Um, there's even a I don't know if they still do it, but a few years ago there was something I think called Sorcerers of the Magic Kingdom, where there were these hmm. kind of screens in in sort of subtle locations around uh, the Magic Kingdom, and you could get these playing cards and, and interact with the screens and go on this little quest through the park, which oh, mm-hmm. did not appeal to me at all. But you know, I could certainly see uh, a certain 
certain age of kid being really into that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is making me think too. Um, we'll find an article for notes. Um, in recent years, every time Disney has expanded in a way that increases park capacity in any of the parks, mm-hmm. um, the demand has always been more than what they they are expanding by. So they expand to you know to sort of meet growing demand, but then the demand grows with it. So right. every time they've expanded to increase capacity, um, demand has grown more so. Mm-hmm. So. They're sort of in this never-ending loop now. Um, yeah. I, I've thought more than once going there the last few years that that um, <laughs> what I would really like to see and what, what seems like it would really help would be to have like an actual truly massive expansion because they've got a lot of land out there. You know, to open um, what what I've seen called on, you know, the enthusiast sites, like a fifth gate, like another another park. Because um, for those who don't know, I, I recognize some of our audience probably hasn't gone. Well, Disney World is actually a series of four theme parks and a couple of water parks and a whole bunch of hotel resorts that are themed in various ways um, over this sprawling thousands of acres, you know, area of swamp that Disney drained in, in mm-hmm. the 50s and 60s. Um, it's it's a huge place with a lot lots of different places to visit within it. Um, but I've, I've often thought like, you know, what, what they probably really need if they want to expand capacity is to add, you know, another studios or, or animal kingdom or Epcot sized something to go do. Mm-hmm. Um, but on the other hand, then I've, I, after starting to think that I've seen over and over again, articles saying exactly what you're saying. They add features, they add shows, they add rides, they add capacity. They do this, um, uh, the whole fast pass system you mentioned, you know, the, the jump the line system they've got is really designed more than anything to increase capacity because what it does is uh, it lets you skip the line on one or two things you really want to do and then strongly suggests that you go skip the line on something you don't actually need to or want to. Mm-hmm. You know, it shifts people around the park to various times, to various places at various times in order to, you know, make sure that instead of having six rides and shows mostly empty all day long, they're mostly full all day long taking people away from the long lines on more popular things. Mm-hmm. Um, every time they do something like that, though, you know, as you say, capacity or uh, uh, visitorship, you know, ridership, whatever ship goes up even more than capacity. Mm-hmm. Um, so if they were to drop $4 billion building a new park, I could, I could see how that might end up backfiring. And, you know, then they've got two parks worth of people coming to see it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, you know, I'm just marveling again at what a rich, uh, source of analysis the entire production is because you know you know I'm a writer and a teacher of writing by training but I'm just thinking about how rich it is for economists and and all these different people who can look at these different models of efficiency or you know we're thinking of productivity but in this case you know how do you move around people to increase enjoyment to increase um, capacity value, you know, there's so many different factors going on and that company works so hard at, at keeping them all in check, mm-hmm. you know, and then of course the trade-off is cost, right? right. Like oh, totally. Their, their budget is ginormous. The, the prices to many people are, um, not necessarily unattainable, but, um, well, I mean, they are unattainable to many people. Oh, sure, sure. Um, um, but yeah, they are, even for those who can attain them, it's, it's not cheap. Right. I'm just thinking about you know, until you think about what is going on, it seems ridiculous. It seems, um, what, what word am I thinking? I'm not inappropriate. Um, ludicrous, ludicrous, ludicrous costs. Um, but you think about how much they're spending to create this experience. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess, you know, I'm thinking like an, an economist in, in more blunt terms, you can't say that a cost is unfair when the cost is derived from what is being spent, what, what, mm-hmm. What level of profit? Right. Um, well, and I think it's I think it's especially hard because what we are talking about is also a luxury good, and it's really hard to say a cost is unfair for a luxury good. Mm-hmm. Um, if if the cost was too high, nobody would buy it because you know it's a luxury. You don't need it. Nobody needs to go. Um, well, our mom might need to go, but nobody else needs to go. It's just something you want to do, mm-hmm. um, and people are willing to do it. That's the other thing is the prices. Yeah, are have gone up and up and up and have reached ludicrous speed. Um, but people still pay them. People pay them in record numbers. Mm-hmm. Huge numbers of people pay them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I think that speaks to the fact that this is a unique experience. Again, with the, the possible 
exception of, I mean, there are places that are comparably well-designed just in different ways. Um, Universal kind of approaches the same level of polish in many ways. I have found the people at Universal are not dedicated the way Disney people are. I don't know if it's a matter of turnover or training or what it is, or if they, you know, Universal just doesn't have an ethos that people <laughs> buy into. Culture. Like cast members do at Disney World. Culture, exactly. But, I mean, at Disney World, and you see, you see cast members who do not meet the standard all the time, but the majority of them do. Mm-hmm. Um, and honestly, the last couple of times I've gone, I've been even more impressed with cast than, you know, during slower times. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the first time we went as, as grownups, Courtney and I, uh, was in 2011. And I feel like the cast has gotten better since then, even though the parks are busier. Mm-hmm. One thing I will say, I was thinking about that too, what makes the experience so distinct. And part of it is, it is, everything is customer service. You know, we've sort of been talking about this the entire time, but whenever I would have a question or we were looking for directions or trying to figure out where something was relative to something else, um, the experience of turning to a cast member and asking a question just, it just everything just feels delightful, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and again... <laughs> Even when what they're giving you is a half-truth designed to get you out of the way of the crowd or mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> to shunt you into what the park wants you to be doing right then. Like, they still make it very pleasant. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you... You can't really cheat the mouse, right? <laughs> <laughs> we are living in the shadow of the mouse. Big Mickey knows. <laughs> Big Mickey sees you. Um, but, you know, just trying to figure out, you know, the, the tiniest request, the tiniest whatever, you know, where's the restroom, where's whatever. Um, you know, people are just delighted to help you because they want things to be efficient and pleasant and maximized. Um, we've talked about that idea of um, maximizing versus satisficing, right? They are trying to maximize everything about this experience. Um, so it was funny, yeah, this last trip, um, you know, we interacted with dozens and dozens of, of cast members. So it is sort of funny when you get the rogue cast member who is slightly more quiet or reserved or is not rude or, you know, sometimes happens. Yeah. They're just such an anomaly. It's like, wow, what was wrong with that person? You know, they weren't, just delighted to tell me where the restroom was, you know, because everyone else is. And again, not, not necessarily in an obnoxious sort of over chipper insincere way. You, I, you know, I really believe those people have a great time because I, you know, often think to myself things like, wouldn't that be great if your job was to stand there and and you get to wave hello and goodbye to everyone all day, which is Mm -hmm. some people's job, you know, the greeters, the, the shepherds sort of at the, entrances and exits yeah well you see i mean there's almost every time i've left the magic kingdom there has been a cast member standing there waving goodbye with a giant mickey glove on one hand Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it's just so joyful it makes you it makes you believe that it would be pleasant to you know earn minimum wage to stand there with a cartoon glove on your hand Mm -hmm. yeah for hours a day and that's something that um uh, the first time I ever went, uh, again, like 1989, and, and again, the first time we went as an adult, 2011, um, something I was struck by both times is, uh, and in some ways it's, you know, some way, someone might spin it a little bit cynically as being crash and commercial, um, but I came away both times with a sense of possibility, I want to say. Like, there was some part of me that was like, I didn't know it could be like this. I didn't know you could have this many people working for my satisfaction with my experience at once. I did not know anybody could pull something off on this scale um, to this level of polish and detail, you know, and 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 uh, just the, the whole package, um, you know, especially as we've gone back as adults, um, and, and experience more of the things that, you know, when we were there as kids, it would be like we'd be eating our own food back at the hotel and, you know, a, a lot of parts of the experience, we wouldn't be staying on property. Um, we wouldn't even be as immersed then. And it still had that sense, but as an adult especially, it's like, you know, it is um, it is just a resort. It is a vacation. It's somewhere you go and then come back from. But there is almost a little bit of that that Walt Disney sense, like what he intended Epcot to be, you know, this planned community that was designed to maximize your experience of life. Um, and, and you know, I, I've come away both times just thinking, of, and, and as an adult too, thinking about the scale, the economics, you know, how, as you said, how, how they pull the whole thing off, like what they are spending, mm-hmm. you know, what they spend in a week on straws for the restaurants, for example. Um, the, the scale of the operation to get rid of the garbage. 
Uh, and the fact that you don't see garbage anywhere in the park. You know, just <laughs> things like that. Um, but the idea that it could be this good, you know, anywhere, even for a little while. Mm-hmm. Um, it is a, it's a standards-raising experience. Mm. That almost sounded like an obnoxious, jargony catchphrase, but I really liked it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> I, I had one thing that I, I don't know where it's going to fit in the conversation, so I kind of want to just drop it in here. Do it. Uh, article from The Onion uh, from a week or so ago. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> Disney World opens new ordeal kingdom for family meltdowns. Oh, God. Uh, I'm just going to read a quick passage here. Situated between Epcot and the Magic Kingdom, the 350-acre property reportedly incorporates many of the most aggravating elements of Disney's other parks and expands them into a creative and fully immersive world of irritation, which is said to include the longest lines in the entire resort, a convoluted layout that is only depicted in indecipherable cartoon maps that are not to scale, and 150% higher prices. According to park director Jacob Bartlett, Ordeal Kingdom's specialized combination of features will ensure a slowly building resentment among visiting families, eventually resulting in a dramatic public outburst followed by a silent walk back to the car. Um, (laughs) I'm grateful not to have participated in too many of of such incidents. Um, The one thing in that that really struck me, I mean, the whole thing... um, (laughs) You know, it's, it's it's the onion at its best. Um, it's so funny because it's true. Uh, the thing that, that jumped out at me there was the uh, the indecipherable cartoon maps that are not to scale. Because uh, even as a grown-up and even as someone who's gone enough times in the last few years to kind of have an idea where I'm going, the maps still drive me crazy. I think that's where the, the disorientation I mentioned is probably actually frustrating, right? Mm-hmm. When, you're, when you're... Sure. Especially when you're trying to... Um, decide when to start walking toward a particular attraction <laughs> and you can't really remember either the exact path. Again, mm-hmm. mother would be disappointed. You can't remember the exact best path or how long it actually is. Right. Because you're not really, you know, even if you know the order of events for your day, you know, to maximize, again, your experience, I'm going to hit this attraction followed by this one, followed by this one. Mm-hmm you're just going, you're not necessarily paying attention to sure. how long it took you to yeah. get A to B to C. Yeah. I, and I have to say where I find that's the worst is ironically enough, uh, Hollywood studios, which I think might be the smallest park. Um, it's certainly smaller than Epcot or magic kingdom. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it, I honestly, as an adult too, it's probably the one we've spent the most Courtney and I spent the most time in. It, it has been our favorite park for a long time. I don't know if that still holds up now that most of it is closed for construction. Um, but I, I constantly get turned around in there, mm-hmm. um, and, and don't know which way to go. And mm-hmm. if anything is worse there than in some of the others, cause like there aren't that many ways to get to a lot of the places. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, and, and it should be said, nothing is, is technically on a grid, even things that are, are straight shots again, the experience is engineered so carefully, your sight lines are meant to look Mm -hmm. at interesting and pretty and immersive scenery or surroundings. So it's, it's not like you can necessarily look up and and recognize where you are relative to other parts of the park. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's something um, I'll link to a a second podcast involving Merlin Mann in show notes, uh, where he's talking to John Gruber several years ago about many things, including produce um, and Las Vegas, but the, the bulk of the conversation was Disney world oriented. And um, something they talked about there, which I, I hadn't thought about so much, I had experienced it without noticing it, and, and since then I've looked for it every time I've gone back, is the way that things like sight lines are managed. Um, you know, you, um, Merlin put it a little bit more strongly in that, in that conversation than I think is true, saying, saying, you know, you don't see Adventureland from, from Tomorrowland, and you don't see Tomorrowland from Fantasyland. And that's not entirely true. There are places where you can see from one land clear across into another, but it's very carefully managed. Um, and like thinking in particular, um, you know, what you can, what you can see, um, across the, the middle of the park, like looking from, uh, what is it called? USA square, Liberty square, (laughs) Liberty square. Yeah. Yeah. Over where, over where the USA today, where the hall of presidents is, um, you know, where the Nixon robot comes out walking like Frankenstein and attacking people. Um, P.S. That doesn't really happen. Uh, but anyhow, like the bit of future land you can see, like it almost kind of fits. Like it's far enough away. It's kind of misty enough. Like it almost seems seems right. Um, but you can't see a lot of those things. And what you can see from one to another is just enough to navigate by, you know, when you're when you're in the right place to be going that way. 
it's not really enough to break the illusion of where you are. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're very good with perspective and color and contrast and, and mold. Like, you know, you know where your eye is supposed to go. Your eye will be drawn to what it's supposed to. Mm-hmm. You're not going to see the seams among the lands. Um, and one, one thing they said on that that I don't think was exaggerated that I, I really, really paid attention to this last trip is things like uh, soundscape management and mm-hmm. music. Um, I think, I think you had pointed out how the music on the buses work, if you'd like to describe that real quick. And then I've got, I've got another one, another Um, example I'd want to follow up on. Uh, they work by friggin' magic. That's how. So, yeah. So listening to one of these, uh, talks that Merlin, well, I mean, episode conversation, um, that Merlin Mann had done thinking about, uh, the way you fade from one distinct area to another is so sneaky. So, uh, riding one of the resort buses from a park to um, back to the resort hotel, um, or I guess vice versa, it was one morning going to a park. The resort had a very particular soundtrack, namely... <laughs> Perhaps too particular. <laughs> <laughs> it was the same 11? Uh, somewhere between 9 and 11 songs oh, from uh, like pop remixes or, or, mm-hmm. or covers, covers of Little Mermaid, um, Lion King, Cars, Cars soundtrack, Cars 2. Uh-huh. So a very particular resort soundtrack, you could say. Um, when you got onto the bus to take you to the park, uh, that soundtrack and, and maybe a few other, maybe instrumental tracks mixed in, um, would be playing on the bus at some point during the journey. Either, and I don't know, I can't tell you, people with more experience probably could, Um, that music either faded out and a new soundtrack began, or they did it between an announcement, or one song just ended and the next began, I don't know. After you pointed it out to me, I actually caught it, it is an announcement. So what it is is you board the bus and the sound the soundtrack playing on the bus is exactly what you were hearing waiting mm-hmm. at the bus stop for the resort. So you know, life is a highway by Rascal Flatts Again. or or uh, Real Gone by Sheryl Crow or you know Brian Wilson's Kiss the Girl. One of those. Whatever's playing at the resort is perfectly synced up when you get onto the bus. The bus is also playing it, mm-hmm. you know, to to the second mm-hmm. synced up. And then after the bus departs, there's an announcement. And when the announcement goes away, the music that comes back is different and will be synced up when you arrive at the park. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I presume they're doing it by by satellite broadcast or or some such because it's. I mean, it is perfectly synced up like you get off the bus and it's you know Mm -hmm. it's like you're hearing one sound system well and in this case yeah we we were maybe two or three minutes into the drive you know hadn't gotten terribly far maybe we're stopped at a red light or something and I had stopped paying attention to the music I had been listening to whatever the previous song had been my attention wandered and when my attention came back it was park music it was what we would be hearing entering the park um and I had missed that moment, and I thought, "Oh, geez, those <laughs> sneaky bastards!" Yeah, there's there's a great one in the Magic Kingdom that is uh, is sneakier still that I really like. Um, so there's a there's a big uh, plaza um, as you enter the Magic Kingdom. You head up what's called Main Street USA, which is sort of an old timey downtown area um, towards Cinderella's Castle. And then there's a big plaza in front of Cinderella's Castle that is sort of the central hub of the park um, from which you can go to the various lands or straight onto the castle or there's a um, there's like a stage there now for shows in front of the castle. Um, and uh, heading, I'm, I'm assuming the park is oriented so you're heading north when you come in. I might have that wrong. Again, they're very disorienting the way the maps work. Um, but uh, we'll say north. If, if the Cinderella's Castle is north of the entrance, if you go on one of the spokes coming out from that central plaza to the north uh, east, you're heading towards Fantasyland, towards the the famous Mad Hatter teacups ride that um, was kind of what I thought all of Disney World was as a kid before we went um, in in sort of that direction. Um, so what you have is you have the castle looming up on your left, um, obscuring your views of the rest of the park that way. Um, straight ahead of you, you can't really see it, but you're headed for Fantasyland. You can kind of see the teacups area. You can't really see Fantasyland. And uh, to your to your right, um, it kind of feels like a bridge the whole way because it's a walkway with, with walls on either side, but really just a little bit of it is a bridge. Most of it's just a walkway. But there's some water. You know, the, the land drops away. There's a little bit of water. You do go over a bridge. And then across it is Tomorrowland. Um, and as you're walking, you have the music of Main Street USA and the plaza playing. 
And then slowly as you get closer to the teacup side, you're also getting closer to Tomorrowland. And the music right there for Tomorrowland is this sort of retro-futuristic, I would almost say like late 80s-ish, you know, electronic keyboards. But it's kind of slow and, and subtle there and, and sort of, you know, music from the hearts of space kind of kind of stuff. Uh, but even though it is, it feels like it's at a very different tempo, it is synced up with the music that you're hearing behind you. So as you're going, you just get these few strains of subtle little futuristic notes sort of in sync with the music from Main Street USA um, playing underneath it. And it, it gets louder and louder, the Tomorrowland does, and the Main Street USA music starts to fade out because you're, you're getting further from one closer to the other. Partway through, the part that's actually a bridge, there's a waterfall. And as you approach the waterfall... You're still getting closer to Tomorrowland. You're getting further from Main Street USA. So as soon as the waterfall comes in, like within just a few steps, the waterfall and Tomorrowland are audible. You can't hear Main Street USA anymore. Mm -hmm. And by the time you are past the waterfall, all you can hear is Tomorrowland. And you hear more notes that you couldn't hear from further away. You know, it's very carefully engineered. Very subtle. If I hadn't been paying attention and looking for it, I would not have caught it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you do notice the music in the parks. But I don't. I think what most people miss, um, at least I certainly miss until, again, it was pointed out by, by Merlin and John Gruber, um, is how carefully engineered it is. It is everywhere. It is omnipresent. And you don't really get seams. Like, you don't you don't go through a door and have this jarring change from, from Aerosmith to Star Wars, um, mm -hmm. for instance, which, which are two things that exist in the same park. Um, there is a Star Wars area as well as an Aerosmith-themed ride in Hollywood Studios. Um, they aren't right next to each other, so you wouldn't, you wouldn't hear that transition there. But the point is, like, you wouldn't hear a transition like that anywhere. It's always subtle. It's always managed. Mm -hmm. um, like your entire experience, it's meant to be seamless. Mm -hmm. um, you will do a lot of different things here, but going from one to another to another will not be jarring. And it is funny to sort of sleuth it out. You know, one of my favorite things on rides, and this might say more about me because I think I've always done this, it's fun to look for how the effect is happening. Um, so I'm thinking of oh, all, yeah. all I'm, the work they do with I'm, I'm constantly looking where I'm not supposed to be looking. Yeah, yeah. Because I want to I wanna see how it was done. You know, how am I getting the effect that I'm, in, that I'm outside, for instance, when I'm not outside? You know, so thinking of the Pirates ride. Um, you know, there are some spaces that are maybe two or three stories tall and who knows, 50, 100, 200 yards deep. Um, but if you look closely enough, you can see black painted ceiling tiles, you know, mm -hmm. things like that. Oh, you, yeah. can, you can spot exit signs, you know, of course, for, for safety reasons, I would hope you can. Um, <laughs> or or the, <laughs> the side channels where um, the boats or the cars or whatever is the vehicle of the ride can be taken off the track or new cars can be mm -hmm. added. Um, yeah, or rescue vehicles can come in. Right, right. Um, but, you know, because you, you want to know how it's happening. You, I appreciate the effect and I, you know, that's sort of my brain is I want to unravel the mystery and see, okay, how have they created this perception mm -hmm. of distance or space right. or whatever? And, and to an extent, I mean, this is, again, to their credit as Imagineers. Um, innovators. Innovators. <laughs> Massivators. You know, another, another thing I find quite magical is it's kind of like there's, um, uh, I think it's a pen and Teller bit, um, I saw a video of this this years ago. I'll see if I can find it for show notes. But there's, and maybe they do this all the time. Like maybe this is their whole shtick. I don't know. I'm not really Penn and Teller fans. But I did see this one video and it struck me how profound this was. They do this thing for this one trick where they tell you how they're going to do it before they do it. You know, the the magician never reveals his secrets kind of thing. They, they break that rule right out. They say, we're going to do this using this. Like this is how this trick's going to work. And then they do it. And it still is mesmerizing, and <laughs> it still looks completely perfect, even mm. when you know. And there's there's kind of that element, too. Like, even looking and knowing, like, that's not a tree. That's a bunch of, like, foam plaster that has been painted and is, is a little too shiny, a little too hard. Mm -hmm. You know, I can kind of see the seams. Um, even noticing those details, it, it is still so so profoundly committed to um, by the people who engineered and built it and by the people who work it, that it still works. Like even when I can see those lines, mm -hmm. you know, I like it's a small world because it's fake and it looks fake, mm -hmm. not because it fools me into thinking I'm in a magical world where everyone in the world sings and gets along. Yeah. I think it's that difference, you know, those two different definitions of fantasy, right? 
there is a self-awareness to it that it's still completely enjoyable even when we know what's going on, Mm -hmm. you know, and there is no, you know, I think a lot of critics would argue that, you know, we're both full of it right here, but there is no pretense that this is reality. It is a very particular type of reality that they are, as we keep saying, engineering. They know that we know that you, you buy into it. And that's how you enjoy it. It's not, you know, there, I don't know. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I think so. I mean, it's, it is the place where you can, you can go and do just that. But, you know, it's, it's also, it's not somewhere you're going to go live. Mm-hmm. Like you can't go live in the Spanish main. You can visit it. You can go through it on a boat. Right. But, um, you know, there's, there's no, there's no, and I don't know, there's, this is something that Universal is a little different on. Like, as I understand it, the business proposition that made Universal Studios Florida a viable competitor wasn't just that they were willing to spend the kind of money to do the sort of special effects and, and theming that Walt Disney World did. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was that they were willing to be a little bit more dangerous. The shark in the Jaws ride came a little cl- too close to the boat. The flames, when there was real fire in a rider show, was a little too close and a little too hot. Mm-hmm. Um you know, they were willing to push those boundaries a little bit. Well, Disney World, I mean, they'll certainly shake you up and, and scare you a little on the thrill rides. But, you know, at no point are you meant to, like, so totally lose your sense of what's going on that you actually feel uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. You know? Disney's way better about safe words. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good way of putting it. Universal doesn't always it. use them, so. No. You're taking your chances. Um, so to... to take some wisdom out of this, right? This isn't just a luxury experience that obnoxious people do in, in their free time with all of their copious amounts of free money, right? Um, <laughs> I would hope that this is useful. <laughs> Otherwise, we're just a bunch of assholes. Right? I mean, that's that's a given, but eh, please continue. Yeah, right. Um, that's my middle name. Mm. Um, so I'm thinking about, you know, just even the way that having these these wonderful privileged experiences in, in in the parks what it's done for me practically um isn't it great that we're all better people um, yeah they have lockers at the front of the park that you can rent if you want to check your privilege perfect check it at the door exit to the gift shop um you know i it's sort of in an obnoxious uh what would so and so do bracelet sort of way um you know, I when whenever I'm I find myself analyzing an experience in in some other space, um, I do find myself asking, uh, well, it's not really a question; it's more of a statement. It's just Disney should run everything. They just they just should, as as corporations <laughs> as, as mega giant conglomerates go. Um, yeah, I have total faith that so many life experiences would be improved by giving them control. Imagine what what a DMV experience would look like if run by Disney World, mm-hmm. um, going through the TSA line at any <laughs> given American airport. I, yeah, that one I have to second. Um, this this last visit that we had in January, um, they the security at Disney was, was more strongly visible and enforced than I've ever seen it before. It was tighter security than I've seen at the parks. And you know what? It was completely pleasant and, and you know... Whereas the TSA in the airport makes you nervous and uncomfortable and is a pain to deal with, the, mm-hmm. the extra, you know, the DSA, the Disney Security Administration, <laughs> the extra security um, that was done at the gates at the park was handled by people who were very professional and competent and nice and funny. Mm-hmm. They were cast members, just like everybody else. Uh, the added security presence in the parks was reassuring in a way mm-hmm. that no TSA member has ever been to me sitting in an airport. Again, they create an experience that you are willing and able to easily buy into. Mm-hmm. They, you know, totally. they can make us okay with this stuff, um, which you know is a little scary and and could become dystopian. But I mean, the world is already what it is. The DMV, <laughs> the DMV and the TSA already exist. So. A, a, a Disney dystopia might be preferable to some of the other possible dystopias. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if this is a simulation, let's let Disney run it. That's what I say. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. So that's that's sort of my take. Posed as a question would be something like, what would this look like if Disney ran it? How uh, how would Disneyfying this operation improve it, either for the people running it and or the people... Uh, consuming the experience, whatever. Um, mm-hmm. So posed as a question, yeah. I guess if if I'm being realistic, more so in life, I think of it as a statement. Disney should run blank. <laughs> <laughs> That's my, Disney my for level president. of commitment. 
Mm-hmm. Make you for president. Yeah. What about you? Uh, closing thoughts or? Mm-hmm. Um, I like it. <laughs> Disney should run the podcast. Uh, Disney should run the podcast. Yeah, I'm, I'm a fan. I'm a fan. Um, it is, uh, I don't know. It's, it's, it is one of my favorite things to do. It's not something I would want to do every week um, or necessarily even every month because the other aspect of the parks reflected in that Onion article, I think, is they can be pretty exhausting. Um, but I, I like, I like every part of it. Um, I have a tremendous time there and, uh, and I don't know, again, the thing I, I am struck by when I go is, is, you know, just that sense of, I, I did not know things could be this good. Mm. And even though it is sort of a facade, like it is, it is a show being put on of things being that good. Um, that experience is still real. You know, I'm not really on a spaceship or a pirate ship or in a movie, but at the same time, um, you know, the enjoyment I had out of it is real. The The sense of wonder, and in a lot of cases, nostalgia, because at this point, I'm not surprised by many things in the park. I've, I've been on most of the things that I go on, you know, when I go now. Um, but yeah, it's, it is it is somewhere dedicated to providing an experience, uh, and their dedication to that experience is not matched anywhere else I've been. And I like that. It's magic, goddammit. You have been listening to Priority. Once again, for complete show notes, or if you'd like to send us feedback via email or subscribe to the show, visit us on the web at priority.fm. If you enjoyed the program today, please go to iTunes and leave us a positive rating and review, as that will help new listeners find the show. Also, if you're interested in getting updates or communicating with us via tweets, follow us on Twitter, where we are at PriorityFM. That's at P-R-I-O-R-I-T-Y-F-M. Thanks again for listening. Favorites. Yeah. Um... So could you pick out a favorite ride if you had to? Oh, God. Um, well, first you have to sort through the mental catalog because there are so many attractions. Um, <laughs> shoot. Okay. I'm trying to go park by park even. Oh, this is so difficult. Honestly, so what's jumping to mind would be like uh, Toy Story Mania, which is an interactive uh, mm-hmm shooting video game sort of ride. It's really more about the game than, um, you know, sitting passively and, and consuming the experience. Mm-hmm. Um, I like Haunted Mansion. Um, yeah, I feel like that's weird to say Haunted Mansion, but... You know, it's... it it. I have that same feeling, but um, if you had asked me a couple of years ago, I might have blurted it out. Um, there is something about Haunted Mansion in particular. Like, I actually, as an adult, I think I like Pirates better. Mm. And Pirates is where I had that that realization of a child that, like, I was, you know, I was in the place where you could go and just do the thing mm-hmm. and be there. Um, but honestly, um, there is something archetypally Disney about Haunted Mansion. Like, there is a level of detail and commitment and and, you know, effects. Um, like the effect, the, the, the ballroom scene in the Haunted Mansion with the, the ghostly figures fading in and out and yeah, Mm -hmm. that effect is so simple and so dumb and so like 1950s technology, but it works so Mm -hmm. well. And maybe that's part of it. It's so quirky. Um, it makes me think of Halloween. It makes me think of my childhood. It's silly. It's a little creepy. Like there are a couple of moments that I just, I don't like, you know, like I don't like the the doors that are knocking and creaking open and shut. Like it is not outrightly scary. Mm -hmm. I do not get shivers from the hallway with the doors moving. But again, it's the effect. Like I let myself be taken by that Mm -hmm. effect that Disney did put something behind that door. And that's actually what I'm hearing. You know, of course they didn't. There's nothing behind that door except the mechanized arm that is moving the door. 
Yeah, I, I as a as a child heading into the haunted mansion, I was expecting something much scarier, um, which actually helped to make it a little creepier and scarier. But mm-hmm. you know, I, I think that's the ride that that on the first trip, mom and I went on the most times was that one. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think it is because it is just such a nice encapsulation of you know mm-hmm. the experience. So, what would you say now? Uh, what I would say now, probably overall. Um, Gosh, I've I've got a lot of favorites. I think Star Tours is probably my number one, just because I do love Star Wars. I loved that one as a kid. Like that's the ride I remember as a child, freaking me out the most. Because um, in the original version, it was just one film. You know, Star Tours. For those who haven't been there, you're in a ride vehicle that's at like a complete room. It's meant to be like a ship. Everybody is buckled into seats, and there's a 3D screen at the front. You wear 3D glasses, and you're looking through the screen at a at a 3D world. Originally a projected film, now it's a digital film that actually mixes and matches parts, so you get a slightly different ride experience every time. Um, but the vehicle doesn't actually go anywhere. It's it's on hydraulics, so it can rock forwards and back and side to side and, and jerk you around and simulate motion while what you're seeing on the screen is real motion, uh, which actually causes motion sickness for some people. Because what you see does not match up quite with what you feel. But it's pretty close. It's pretty good. And as a kid, not having any idea what, what to expect, like I was really taken by it. And actually, it scared the crap out of me because the original ride film... Um, you're making your way through like some sort of corridor and some kind of space dock like before you actually get out into space flying around and the droid who's piloting is kind of incompetent and you go over a cliff and like the ship is plunging like straight down in a dive uh, and it, it felt so real. Um, it really took me. As a grown-up, um, I still love Star Wars. Uh, they've done a really good job like mixing and matching bits of footage so you get different experiences. Uh, and honestly, like a lot of the stuff in Star Tours now is material from the prequels, and even that isn't too bad. Like they've, um, Serenity Caldwell, I think, pointed this out on an episode of The Incomparable. Like w- one of the reasons she was hopeful when Disney bought Lucasfilm is because even prequel material, Walt Disney World has done a good job with, um, you know, and and I I appreciate that. Uh, so I, I think I think Star Tours is probably mm. my favorite. I think Mickey Bar is my favorite ride. <laughs> that's weirder to say out loud yeah that'd be funnier I'm talking about ice cream people yeah I, I prefer the uh, the Mickey shaped uh, Rice Krispie treats but those mm. are good too either way we could say in a tyrannical voice bring me the head yeah. of Mickey the Mouse do you have a favorite park uh, I man again ranking is hard it's like choosing among one's favorite children <laughs> um uh, I do really like Epcot. I know people aren't aren't terribly taken with Epcot. Something about it's very charming. Um, probably Magic. I have to say Magic Kingdom. Like if I, I was only, but I, if I could only do one, mm. Magic Kingdom. Yeah. Probably still Epcot before Hollywood Studios, but I do. Hollywood Studios probably has the biggest how to say this density of, of attractions that I would put at the same quality. And I love all mm-hmm. equally. It's probably the, so I guess you could say it's, it's the most consistent experience for me is Hollywood. Mm, that's a good way of putting it. I guess. Yeah. You'd I, say Hollywood studios. I, I would have, I right now it's in such a transitional state. <laughs> uh, I mean, a lot of what I loved about Hollywood studios is um, like the, you know, the, the front of the park, it's a version of main street USA, you know, um, Hollywood and Sunset Boulevard and all these these streets with these old timey buildings, um, things like the Backlot Tour, um, Streets of America, which is a is a you know a busy city street sort of set you can walk down, um, which you can you can tell we're a Disney family because I've been working in the downtown area here in Kansas City for the last two years, and when I hear the sounds of honking horns and and air brakes and and uh, garbage trucks and things echoing through the chasms created by the giant buildings downtown here, what it makes me think of is the soundtrack of those things playing at the the, the back at, you know the set that is Streets of America at Disney World, rather than the the set there evoking. Uh-huh. Um, here. Life. Anyhow, I like I like all that old Hollywood old movie stuff there, but that is kind of going away in favor of Star Wars stuff, and more and more of it is just closed down and under construction. So like right now, it's it's harder to enjoy that park, mm-hmm. um, both because some of the stuff that I really love is going away, and because it is not as you know, it's 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 in transition. Mm-hmm. Uh, that might come roaring back because again, I love Star Wars, and most of the stuff going in is Star Wars stuff, you know. So 
But I, I'm leaning towards Magic Kingdom now. Um, one thing you said, Epcot is a very charming. Um, another John Syracuse comment I'll share before we go uh, from that podcast. Again, I'll link to it in show notes. Is that Epcot, the buildings are like, you see like a architect's concept sketches for like a community center or an office or a church. And it's very futuristic or, or like 50s futuristic. And it's very idealized and the trees are nice and idealized. And there's no there's not a lot of people around and there's no trash. You don't see trash cans. You know, it's all... It's, he says Epcot is like the architect sketch, but somebody, instead of like bowing to reality and material science, like just went and built the architect sketch. Mm-hmm. And I think that's very apt. Mm-hmm. Just went for it. Yeah. I think, I think Epcot might be my favorite right now to walk around in just cause I've, I haven't spent that much time there and I do appreciate that sure. retro futuristic feel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One final tangential thought, <laughs> you saying experiencing the the actual real life busy street reminded you of Disney. I'm thinking of a a line from the Nora Ephron movie You've Got Mail, where Meg Ryan's character, who's a bookshop owner, um, is reflecting on how so often in life she has an experience that reminds her of something she read in a book, but shouldn't it be the other way around? Um, I think that is what it is to have a a literary and narrative and, and fantastic mind is you know, sometimes I'll see things going that backwards way and be like, oh, that's like in Disney where blank. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, like, oh, that's a well-placed whatever like Disney would do instead of just saying like, oh, that's a thing out in the world. Mm. You know, your reference points change. Like, oh, this reminds me of in the story of blank. <laughs> what would Walt do? Mm, WWW. WWD. WDW. What would Walt Disney World do? <laughs> Ding. <laughs> Yay. <laughs>